This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Forgotten Burial, A Restless Spirit's Plea for Justice. And the author is Jody Foster, and Jody joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jody. Hello. Well, you're going to take us on a paranormal journey, a journey that goes back over 32 years ago, and and I want to read a, a couple of things that you have written about your book. You say this, have you ever had an encounter beyond the grave that made you question reality or your own sanity? Well, you're not alone. This true paranormal story might just scare the skeptic out of you and inspire you at the same time. Forgotten Burial is equally intriguing, creepy, and uplifting. The story has many chilling and intriguing revelations. Well, first of all, Jody, you had paranormal experiences uh, as a young child. Yes, yes, I did. Um, Starting at the age of about nine, Um, However, at the time, I didn't realize that I was seeing um, spirit people. I thought they were actually people. Okay. So, um, Did you tell your parents? I did. I had an experience with a Native American uh, boy spirit on the mountain that I lived up on in uh, Berry Creek, California. And this was um, 1976. And I did tell my mom, and, of course, you know, they didn't really, <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> right, yeah, like, right. Our child is hallucinating, and we don't know right. why. Exactly. Right. So, um, did it seem to worry them? I mean, did that happen a lot to you? Actually, no, it didn't happen very often as a child, but I was very sensitive. Um, my grandfather, and I write about this in the book, um, was a mortician from Albany, New York, and so he had a interesting view on spirituality and uh, the afterlife. So it was actually my grandpa who kind of opened my mind up to um, the idea that there was a spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, your book is much different than most books about paranormal activity because this is based on an actual event that happened over 32 years ago. Tell us the, uh, the whole story behind the story. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, I had some uh, supernatural or I guess you would call it paranormal experiences as a child. And then what ended up happening to me is I started having uh, panic attacks and I kind of tried to block out being very sensitive to people's energy and, um, and spiritual, the spiritual realm. So as an adult, I, um, 
I had this encounter at the age of 31, 32, and so it kind of opened my eyes up to, um, once again, the spiritual realms and kind of uh, took me back to my childhood. (laughs) And it happened um, that I moved from Montana in uh, the end of 1999, and I moved into an apartment located in Chico, California, 125 Parmac Road, into the last known residence of um, a missing teen from 1976. Prior to moving into the apartment, I didn't have any knowledge of any paranormal activity or any anything unusual happening in that apartment. Um, it wasn't until I moved into the apartment complex and I moved into an upstairs apartment that I started having um, strange anomalies happen and also nightmares of an abduction. And so the name of this missing teen is Marie Elizabeth Spanicky. That's correct. And yes. they never found her. That's correct. Well, and that's where I come into this story. Right. Um, what was happening to me is, uh, well, the paranormal, paranormal activity um, escalated when I moved into um, Marie Elizabeth Spanicky's last known residence, and I ended up having nightmares of an exact location where someone's body was taken and buried in a remote mountainous location that I had never been to nor had seen in my normal waking life. (laughs) So I wasn't sure at the time if it was, um, if I was crazy or if it was just nightmares or, you know, I didn't know what was going on. It really was confusing. So um, the the paranormal activity and the dreams... um, seemed to go hand in hand, and I write about in my book how it all unfolded, how it unfolded that I learned that Marie Elizabeth Spanning was actually missing and connected to um, a notorious criminal by the name of Cameron Hooker and his wife Janice. And these people made the news so big, they were on Gerardo and Oprah back in the 80s. This was a big case. Yeah, apparently so. And what I didn't, I didn't have any idea that this was even a huge case at all. I, I didn't know um, that there was any connection to my apartment or to um, the missing girl. It wasn't until I started having these paranormal experiences and talked to a um, a man who lived in the apartment complex for a really long time who said nobody lived in these particular apartments very long and it was because there was a lot of paranormal activity and he thought it might be related to um, the the missing persons case connected to Cameron and Janice Hooker uh, known for holding a captive sex slave for seven years under their bed. And of course that woman's name was Colleen Stan and they were found guilty and is he still serving time, Cameron Hooker? Right. Um, Cameron Hooker is in prison right now, serving time for the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Colleen Stan. However, 
Janice, his wife, um, who was also a part of the abductions and alleged murder, um, was granted immunity for her testimony against her husband in the sex slave um, case. But what's interesting is the Maria was this Spanicky case has never been tried, and due to my experience and my um, working with the California Department of Justice and the Red Bluff Police, the story came uh, to light, and um, hopefully they're putting a murder case together for the future. So your book, Forgotten Burial, is really given a voice to the ghost of this missing girl. Absolutely, and and that was part of the reason for writing the book was to chronicle my experiences and share with the world that, you know, you're not necessarily crazy if you experience something paranormal. It could actually be connected to something based in reality. However, you know, before you jump to conclusions, it's really important to assess yourself and have um, your situation assessed and make sure you're not actually hallucinating or crazy. So um, I talk about this in the book because um, there's a lot of, you know, times where lights will go off and on in your apartment and, you know, you might get chills and you think, oh, my, my house is, a, you know, something's wrong. Really, it could just be an electrical problem. But there are times um, where maybe the spiritual realm is trying to um, connect with you and find justice from beyond the grave. And so I wrote Forgotten Burial, um, A Restless Spirit's Plea for Justice, because Marie Elizabeth Spanicky wanted her voice to be known and she wanted to be remembered and that, you know, she was a person. She was a teen just starting out her life and um, and this horrible couple came and allegedly abducted her and then took her to a home to become a sex slave and because she fought against that she lost her life whereas Colleen Stan didn't fight and became their captive sex slave for seven years. Now when your daughter started telling you about as you call it, an unseen angel, what what did that do to you? Well, at the time, um, it shocked me. And I write about this in Forgotten Burial is um, where my daughter had said to me on the very first visit to the downstairs apartment, um, while we were doing a walkthrough alone together, she said, Mommy, who's that girl? And I said, well, she actually said hi. She said hi, hmm. and, I, and I jumped. And how old was your daughter? Um, she was three and a half, mm-hmm. and she was very, she could talk really well. She was, mm-hmm. you know, she was pretty bright. And um, I said, who are you talking to, honey? And it scared me. My heart started to hmm. jump. You know, I thought maybe there was someone in the apartment with right. us. However, it ended up that... There was nobody there, and so Hannah, my daughter, um, said, Mom, there's that girl, and I said, what girl? So she actually was able to see Mm -hmm. a spirit person, which I thought was pretty interesting how uh, eventually, and I write about this in Forgotten Burial, how 
little kids are more sensitive to the spiritual realms than maybe adults. Maybe as adults we block out a lot of um, what we, we would consider not reality, where little kids... Well, they're so innocent. Yeah, they're innocent. They're they pure and innocent that. at that age, just pure and innocent. Right, and so I, I kind of um, explain in my book that, um, you know, we start out as, as innocent little kids and, you know, then we, we go along life and we may have experienced certain things that we try to just, you know, put off to <laughs> something mm-hmm. else. And um, so I talk about, you know, me listening to my, my guts and my soul and my daughter and realizing that eventually this was something, it was something big and it was something important and that I eventually needed to do something about it. But I didn't at the time know what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I chronicle um, my experience and how it unfolds in, and involves into eventually um, working with the California Department of Justice and the Red Bluff Police. So it was pretty intense. You were there for 30 days and then moved. It was very intense while you were there, and when you left, it was intense in a different way. Yes, absolutely. While I was there um, in that particular apartment, um, lights would go off and on. TVs would um, turn on by themselves. All the cupboards in the kitchen would open on, fly open on their own. Um, I would wake up constantly at three thirty seven in the morning, and at, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. It was really nerve-wracking and scary, to the point I actually had um, a friend come and stay with me, and the friend also experienced the paranormal activity. So it was um, uh, my friend Misty, my friend Edie, my daughter Hannah, and a, and a handful of people that would come over to the apartment um, all noticed that there was something very strange. And come to find out, um, just like old John had said, no one lived in that apartment very long. And that there was a history of people also experiencing paranormal things. So yeah. now, So now to complete the story, behind the story, you have successfully been able to help the police. Well, um, I, I talk about that in the book. I, I'm still not able to um, talk about certain things. Sure, sure, we but, understand. Um, it's an open case. Yeah, because it's an open case still, um, but I do chronicle my experience, and I share with um, the reader, you know, the journey that I experienced, and um, so far, people who have read the book are, just say they can't put it down. They're so excited, and they can't believe that I actually experienced something so traumatic, and then wrote about it. Well, since then, have you had paranormal activities? Um, I I do experience paranormal activity on occasion. Um, I try to, as an adult now, limit my um, my my time that I help people. At, at times, uh, people will come to me because I have clairvoyant abilities, and they'll ask me to, for instance, um, go into a home that they think might be haunted. And I've been able to <laughs> oh, help those people understand their experience, yeah. and then kind of confirm whether or not they, you know, if it's based in reality or if it's just something that could be electrical. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's 
protocol that, you know, you have to follow. You can't just assume something's haunted. Um, or you can't just, you know, with clairvoyance or people that have this ability, you can't just um, take their word at face value. I mean, I always tell people to be a skeptic. I mean, I'm still a skeptic of my own experience. And, and search out the truth, basically, is what, is what I, mm-hmm. you know, people to do. Um, it's like, it's about finding truth and finding justice and finding peace within yourself. So, um, and I share that all in the book, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that there are going to be many skeptics out there of my experience, and I'm, I'm glad. I encourage that. I think people should be skeptical. <laughs> right. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think people should, you know, go to psychics or 1-800-call-a-psychic and try to, you know, figure out their lives. Lives are way more complicated than that. The title of the book, Forgotten Burial. A Restless Spirit's Plea for Justice. And the author is Jody Foster. Jody, tell us how to get your book. Um, well, you can get it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, um, iUniverse, or you can go to my website at JodyFoster.net, or you could go to your favorite bookstore and request them uh, to uh, have it in their store or buy a copy. Jody, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle. And sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 
sharing power. Colombia's dramatic surge of women leaders, 1957 through 1998. And the author is Barbara Frechette. And Barbara joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Barbara. Hello, how are you, Steve? This is a more than fascinating story because we're going to be talking about female leadership in a country where it was macho man and it was a heavy drug trafficking time of Colombia's history and you and your husband were in the middle of it. We'll talk about why and the details, but let me read just in general what you've written. You say sharing powers seven outstanding women are presented as leaders in Colombia's remarkably rich 41-year period of male-female power sharing. Their swift, inclusive, non-combative empowerment was greatly facilitated by their use of distinctly Latin American feminine leadership and long-standing legacies of females and powerful positions in national politics. I like this statement, too. This book analyzes the paradox of a positive development of amiable women's empowerment during the darkest, most violent period of drug trafficking in Colombia. There are no books about Colombia that are anything like that. Well, (laughs) very fascinating, Barbara. Tell us... uh, Let's let's go back and tell us about uh, your husband's role there and how you got right in the middle of this and realized there was a great story here. Well, his role was a difficult one. He was sent down there to be tough against drugs. And there were, I would say that when we arrived, about 75% of the people thought he was on a fool's errand, that he'd never, you know, convinced people that it wasn't a good idea because it was such a moneymaker. So he was and appointed ab- ambassador from the United uh, States Clinton, to Colum- yes. Columbia. Right. To be tough. To be tough. To be tough. And um, many people said he was too tough, but he was just doing his job. And uh, so they were, you know, many people wanted to kill him. And there were eight attempts on his life, unsuccessful, I'm happy to say. And... Um, <clears throat> It made for a very, very interesting time. They were very good to us in Colombia. They protected us very well. So, And so did our people in the State Department. And, of course, he had to work with a president, the president of Colombia, who had received uh, uh, funds to get elected from the drug cartels. Yes, that was not helpful. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but there were many people. As I said, we started off with about 75-25 uh, percentage for pro and against, and we ended up with about 75 against and 25 for. So we had we made a big difference. I say we, my husband made a big difference, or the United States made a big difference. I have to clarify that. Was it evident to you? Uh, as was it? profoundly evident to you about the role of women there not like the role of women in the United States? Uh, there, it's, it, there was very different. In fact, I got off the plane and I thought I was in a different, on a different planet. Uh, it was, everything was different. In the first place, these women loved being women. There was no desire to be a man or to do anything like a man would do it. They, they cherished womanhood. They loved being feminine. 
<clears throat> and they all were. They were all women who were married, some of them a couple of times. They all had children. They loved being mothers. And uh, <clears throat> working was optional. Working was extra. They didn't have to worry about child care because women helped one another. If they didn't have a sister that would take care of the kids, they had a devoted family uh, helper who'd been with them for years. And they also had women who didn't want to work outside the home but would take in children in the neighborhood. On every corner there was probably a woman who was doing that. So you see that that was taken care of pretty much, which was a big problem for us here in the United States. <clears throat> so they were, they were proud of being mothers. They were proud of being wives. They were very happy to, and they protected their children very much. All that was quite different from in, in, in the United States. Not that we did, didn't care for our children or didn't want to be mothers, but if you were a, a mother here, you know, the mother wars, mommy wars, you probably didn't work. But there they worked, and they were mothers, and they were protectors of children. And you call them pioneers who broke gender barriers as the first women to succeed in a position formerly held exclusively by men. That's right. All the women in the book. I, I selected these women from lists that I was given by very important Colombians and by other women. And uh, the women that were on the list most often got in the book. I interviewed 16, but they were, and they all had to be <clears throat> a woman that was in a job that had never been held by a, man, a woman before. They had to be pioneers. They had to be uh, pathfinders, trailblazers, and they had to leave a good, clear path for others to follow. And they had to be role models. They had to be very generous and, and be somebody that was admirable and would help other women. So they had to be a three-way leader. Well, why don't you share some examples? Uh, why don't you pick out a couple of these women and just give a little, you know, thumbnail sketch of why they made your list? Okay, I'll pick the first woman that was on everybody's list and the last woman who was on everybody's list. Great. Uh, the first woman was Esmeralda Arboleda. She was a woman from a family of six sisters, she had no brothers. Her mother was a dynamo who had a flower shop in her home and sent all of uh, her daughters to college if they wanted to go. Uh, Esmeralda was the first woman to enter a law school, a provincial college. She was uh, the second lawyer in uh, Columbia, and she was the one who led the woman's movement. She was a marvelous woman who had a wonderful idea of feminism, and that was that all women should help, had a duty to help other women better their lot. That was her definition of feminism. And uh, she believed in that strongly. She believed that uh, women had to get into politics and change the laws that denigrated them. So she... she uh, <clears throat> uh, she was at the time in politics, and she, and it was an authoritarian regime, which was very common 
in Latin America for development of the women's movements because they really didn't like those leaders. And they banded together and got them out. And that's the legacy that I talk about. They were real leaders in Latin America, not just... They didn't have secondary roles. They had the prime role. So they didn't. They knew that they couldn't alienate the male uh, dominant male leadership in the country. They had to show that they could uh, work with them and even make things better. Oh, of course, yes. Well, they did have to alienate the ones that they didn't like. Mm-hmm. But they all did it together. Okay, so there was, was not a mano a mano thing. Yeah, there was power and unity then. Right, and that was the whole thing. She, she developed the women's movement in Colombia and got them the vote. That's why she was first on everybody's list. And she was the first senator, national senator. She was the first woman uh, ambassador. And she was a UN, uh, member of the UN mission, too, which was unusual. She was a wonderful leader, really. And she developed a woman's movement that had unity. She, she went around. This was during a, a time when they couldn't protest. So she had, they had to run around, get every woman in all the provinces together. So she had great unity. She had pretty much all the women in Colombia on her side. She wasn't alone. She had a... Con- she was a liberal. She had a conservative helper who was also the first minister of education. And they together put, made this union of Colombian women. And it was um, <clears throat> uh, very, very unified. And they also had drew up 22 points that they could agree on. So they had shared goals, 22 of them. The first was peace, because Colombia just had two decades of Colombians, uh, conservatives killing liberals and liberals killing conservatives. And they, had, they knew that had to stop. It was kind of like our time now, but people were killing each other. They weren't just yelling at each other. They were not doing things with each other. And uh, they knew that had to stop, so they, uh, that was their first. They wanted peace first. Second thing was the vote. And uh, she managed to stand up in the Congressional Congress and give a very moving speech, which is in the book, which always makes me tear up, because it's, you can see how forceful the woman was. She was a great orator and a um, great rhetorical leader. So that's why she was the first one in the book. And uh, the last one in the book was very different. She was a, a young woman from Medellin, and she... Um, was a lawyer, and she got a job as a legal advisor at a, a financial services company. And uh, she became vice president of uh, three of its entities, financial, technical, and one other I forgot the name of. And they said, gee, this woman is done and knows this company better than anyone. Let's make her president. So they did, and she was 30 years old. My goodness, 30 30. And she, <laughs> this was a private sector company, and uh, she did very well there. She developed some programs for poor people, which was unusual in Colombia because they'd never lent money to anybody that wasn't rich. 
but she let you know she developed a, a workers program and a rental program and all kinds of programs, three programs that were <coughs> for the middle class, and they worked out beautifully. So then she became the minister of communications, and that was she was the first to ever have that job, and she then and she developed the television. Uh, men, much of the television that happened. It was a time when a fax machine was a miracle to Colombians or to anybody. Uh, you know, it was pretty primitive television stuff that she really thought, uh, thought for. The next thing she was was, um, uh, yeah, the ambassador to Venezuela, which doesn't sound too important, but it's very important in Colombia. You know, the relationships between those two countries is always fraught with danger. And she was very, very popular in that. And finally, she became uh, Colombia's first uh, foreign minister. And uh, that was 10, 20, 10 years before we had one, before Hillary was in, in that job. And uh, <coughs> then she went off and was uh, ambassador to England. And uh, when some Paris, when they had the presidential pr uh, primary in in uh, 1998, she and another woman in the book, who was co-director of the central bank at the time, became the two feminine uh, presidential candidates. So that was the first book. But the first book was all about Colombia, all about Colombian women leaders, and uh, that was it. This book is very different because it reframes them. It's the same people, it's the same profiles, but now they are now they represent this feminine leadership, Latin American Latina leadership, and Latina legacy of political activity, and they represent their era. And the era was very interesting. It was a development of. Uh, media power, it was the de uh, development of transformational leadership, all these things were advantageous for women. Uh, and one of the, another woman in the book who was an artistic leader in uh, the fiber art, fiber art, you know, she does tapestries, <laughs> uh, was, is world renowned and became world famous because there was a world famous uh, uh, fiber movement that she was a leader of. So these women were not insignificant women on the world stage. Barbara, we have about a minute left. Uh, what can women here in the United States learn from uh, the women highlighted in your book? You have about a minute. Okay. They can, they can concentrate on unifying, and they can define their uh, goals, and they can include everybody. We don't. We can't have these divisions between Democrats and Republicans, or, or conservatives or liberals, or or working women and stay-at-home moms. We've all got to get together, and we've got to put women into political power. We have to get more women in legislatures, and for that, I have uh, tried to. Um, well, I've, I've sent my book to about a dozen universities here on the East Coast and ask the women's studies people to put it on their reading list, and I hope they will. 
because we need to get more women into legislatures. The title of the book, Sharing Power, Columbia's Dramatic Surge of Women Leaders, 1957 through 1998, and the author is Barbara Frechette. Barbara, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at, at the Barnes & Noble Boutique, iUniverse, uh, uh, Rising Star list. You can get it. Uh, I'll soon have a website. I'll soon have a Twitter and a Facebook account. And you can also buy it from the publisher, iUniverse. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed it a lot. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Come Walk With Me to Glory, What Being a Christian Means to Me. And the author is Diane Wells Matlock. And Diane joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Diane. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us and great to share your story with many who are listening and I know it's going to have an impact on them. Let me read what you have written, just to kind of set the stage. Come Walk With Me to Glory presents the reality of the love of God reaching out to us through the direct, personal, down-to-earth style of a heart that has been tested through both failure and success 
and found to be true. You also say this, during chaotic and troublesome times, come walk with me to glory shows just how powerful, eternal, and universal God's love is. Well, like all of us, we go through challenging times. You've had your challenges. We'll talk about some of those in detail and how that's increased your faith. Why write the book, Diane? What, what was the motivation here? Uh, Steve, I think the motivation really uh, is is due to the fact that daily and just on a regular basis, I meet people who who believe that they are following the Christian walk. But if you refer to the Bible, a lot of people believe with their minds, with their heads, but they don't have it anchored in their heart as something that is a reality, that God is a reality, and he is really, really there to love us and help us through difficult times. And I see people constantly speaking negatively rather than in a positive, faith-filled manner, and I see a lot of failure amongst people when it doesn't have to be failure if they could get hold of the fact that God will help you if you trust him. And trust and believe really are key words. Because in the New Testament, the word believe always means that you adhere to, like adhesive tape sticks to something, and that you rely on and that you trust in God. And so I I just find so many people who believe with their head, but they do not have that that strong, assured belief that God is really on their side, really real, and really ready to act in their behalf. You were raised in a basically a poverty, we call it. You uh, picked cotton as a child to, just to help the family. Right. Were you also taught uh, this kind of faith? Yes, and in a sense I was. I mean, there w- no one was very well educated uh, in, in the family regarding uh, religious practices or beliefs. Uh, my grandpa referred to himself as a Baptist, and he sat on the front porch a long time time of his life a lot of time because he actually was a uh, tuberculosis patient which it was in remission most of the time but my granny uh, if there was a revival and anywhere within range of our home we went to it it never mattered to her if it was Pentecostal Baptist or what if it was a revival we went to the revival so I did not grow up with uh, anyone teaching me, um, you know, uh, to determinedly hang on to a certain denomination, that it was God and what he had to offer that we were looking for. <laughs> then your first marriage, that changed uh, your economics, your financial uh, situation dramatically, and suddenly you were traveling around the world. That is true, yes. And I developed a different lifestyle altogether, having left my granny in the comfort and security. Even though there was poverty, I don't think I knew I was poor because she sang all the time and was happy and prayed. And I had quite a joyful 
childhood I don't recall having, um, you know, the stress of feeling just pitiful or poor or neglected in any way. Um, but when I changed uh, to a city-fied kind of life and took on the worldly environment as thinking, oh, gee, this is the way the world really is once I became a teenager and had moved away from my granny's home, then I developed a whole different standard of uh, ways to live, and it was partying, uh, going to um, cocktail parties, going to the country club, taking tennis lessons, just everything, nothing wrong with those things, and I'm not being critical of them. I'm just saying they became my new way of life to try to fit in with what the rest of the world seemed to expect of me. Your husband was, uh, he was a diplomat, uh, an ambassador? No, not at all. He, uh, when I first married him, he was in the Army Security Agency, and then later in life he switched to uh, a, a national defense kind of job in the so that civilian. took you. So he worked for an American embassy in a foreign country, and that's at how, one time, right? Yes. And so Otherwise, you, I'm sorry. You traveled in a whole different circle then. Yes, I did, and it wasn't just the embassy circle. It was also military for a long time. But we spent 15 years out of the country, nine consecutive years uh, out of the country, and none of that time was really spent in pursuing things of God. I would cry and pray and fall on my face and beat my fists on the floor and beg God to help me when things got really low because of the upbringing I had had with my granny. But uh, when the crisis would pass, and I'd just be right back to my regular little routines, more or less stashing God on the shelf somewhere, and uh, it doesn't work that way. You, you can get by with that for a while, but sooner or later you need to recognize and acknowledge him with some respect and honor if you really want to live a godly, successful, good life with him as your partner in business rather than just winging it through the world on, on hope that you're guessing at the right answer. And your husband at that time wasn't interested? No. a matter of fact, it surprised me one day when I picked up his dog tag and it said, Atheist. And I'm like, I can't be married to an atheist. My goodness, <laughs> that must have been a shock. It. it truly was, but it was also very ignorant on my part to not have known that before I married him. Mm -hmm. But that's just another one of the pitfalls of youth. <laughs> but after 22 years, because of some physical abuse, you finally uh, divorced. Yes, that is correct. And then a whole new chapter, a whole new chapter of faith and Christianity entered your life. Yes, and I will have to use the idea here of, of what it can mean to other people for you to, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, then if you actually behave as a Christian, you can have a serious effect on other people's lives. If you're only doing everything everybody else is doing, you are not being a witness for the Lord because they're not seeing any difference in your behavior than their own. So you and your husband, Ralph Wells, had two Christian bookstores. 
That's correct. And it was a joy. It was a ministry and a joy. That is true. He was well-suited financially with his retirement income as an engineer from the from the government, and um, so the money that uh, the stores produced in, in the way of profit uh, was always put back into the stores so that they grew and prospered and, and had greater outreach, and um, they were just wonderful places. They, were, they weren't businesses. They were, but they, that was not their primary intent. But as life always seems to uh, help us learn to grow and grow in our faith, some big challenges came. Yes, sir. They truly did. Uh, Mr. Wells developed Alzheimer's, which for quite a long time we just attributed to stress. And uh, we decided that we would move back to Tennessee, which was my uh, home originally, and and I had come to after after so many years of being away, I had come to one end to be back and uh, near, near family members and and my home, so we moved back to um, the uh, the banks of the Tennessee River in an extremely rural part of uh, Tennessee, and um, it. That in itself was a total challenge because it was rocky, wooded, thousands of acres around the around the 54 acres that we had purchased, uh, rattlesnakes, <laughs> no running water. I mean, it was just a very strange and and uh, interesting <laughs> way to uh, start out our new retirement life. And, How long uh, after you retired did he pass away? Well, we learned that he, he was actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's somewhere around 1993 or four. He lived 12, he lived a total of 12 years with Alzheimer's from the diagnosis to his death. So, um, and I, I looked after him, I adored him. He. I called him Mr. Mr. Ralph. I know that's just quaint and odd to people, but when I had met him, he had been a boss in the, the government job that he had and was a peer t- to my boss. And so to me, he was just Mr. Wells with the Christian, nice Mr. Wells with the Christian bookstore. And because he was older than me, uh, the f- further we went along and, and our relationship, um, the more I also became accustomed to the young people, usually teenagers that had part-time jobs with us in the store, they always referred to him as Mr. Uh, Wells or Mr. Ralph because it was just a sort of pet name. So throughout all the years we were married, I referred to him as um, as Mr. Ralph. <laughs> so uh, people have wondered about that somewhat <laughs> through the years, but it suited our situation, and we were happy with it. So, and you learned that God will not let you down. Absolutely not. We went through uh, tornadoes rattlesnakes, every kind of thing you can think of. It was like being a pioneer in Tennessee in modern day. And uh, it, it was a remarkable way to to live 
and uh, we had to put a mile of road in to get to our home site through rocky, rough terrain. It it was an experience. It truly was. (laughs) And yet another challenge with your son. Yes. He came to our door from uh, having lived away from home a long time and uh, shared with me that he did have full-blown AIDS. So um, for a few years, the Alzheimer's and the AIDS overlapped, and I was the caregiver. Uh, My goodness. goodness. Yes. It it was a difficult time, but truly God did keep us all. And when they left this earth, I knew where they were going. Your, one of your greatest concerns for Christianity today, that it's on the decline. True. That is true. Um, not only have I read things that refer to that, but I've, I've heard it on, on TV shows, and mainly I see it all around me. I honestly cannot remember the last time I heard a, a preacher, and I know a lot of good preachers and love them and have great respect for them, but it's been a long time since I've heard a preacher preach the old-timey kind of gospel of um, uh, hellfire and damnation, so to speak. <laughs> they don't seem, it seems politically incorrect to use those words anymore. And so I think people are, um, in a way, they're being cheated because they're not hearing the full story and uh, that little bit of fear regarding hell and that uh, great deal of hope regarding heaven doesn't seem to be um, presented in such a clear manner anymore. And uh, that is my concern, that so many people do believe with their head, but they don't understand John 3, 3, which says that you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. And that's very alarming to me that... um, People don't act more similar to the way Mr. Wells did when he impressed me so with his Christianity, not him as a person, but as his way of life. The emphasis of your book is on the magnificence of God and uh, our desire to obtain as much of his holiness in our hearts as we can. Amen. That is true. Um, one um, um, throughout the book there are some little areas that are in bold print and, and sort of indented to to make them stand out and I just happen to have the book open right now to one of those sections and it says walking with God is the pinnacle of all that is good and worth striving for on earth and it is a blessed and lovely way to live Choose to allow trust in him to bring order to any chaos or need that may be in your life. It is a decision that you will personally make in your heart, and it will not be based on any religious ritual. You will never regret it. My suggestion is to encompass extreme, by the world's standards, Christianity. Being mediocre in anything is to withhold excellence. Seeking the excellence of God is an exciting and wonderful quest. The title of the book, Come Walk With Me to Glory, What Being a Christian Means to Me, and the author is Diane Wells Matlock. 
Diane, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, it's available on the Internet, and it's also available to be ordered through uh, bookstores, Christian Arts, our regular bookstores. Um, and hopefully it will be on a lot of shelves soon. And that's my prayer, and that's where I'm keeping my faith. I, I tell you, um, I've, I've reached a point in life where I would just like to see see this book touch people in, in in a way that will encourage their hearts, that will give them the courage to stand out amongst the crowd and be a Christian, to stand for the good in life and to stand against the evil. And if you have a confrontation that's difficult, you still be standing when it's over because the Lord God Almighty will keep that strength in you and he will be with you if you're trusting him to do that. Diane, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's been my pleasure. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.